It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen? Seals? The mark? How did the early church understand it all, anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that in the end, he wins. Jesus wins. Hey, Sanctus Church, welcome back to another week as we're still walking through the wild and fantastic book called Revelation. Now, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 is full of wild and scary images. So before we get to them, I just need to remind all of us about the very first thing that we saw as we started going. The very first thing we discovered in the book of Revelation was Jesus, his, his power, his beauty, who's in charge, who has the final say, where life is. And we have to keep that incredible image of Jesus at the forefront as we keep walking through all of this darkness. We also need to remember the true end of history because at the end of history, Jesus makes all things right. Jesus being clear in front of us, and also the end of history allows us to keep going well between the first and second coming of Jesus. Now, we're halfway through the book, and as things are getting harder and more complicated, the real question that is sort of being worked out is, who owns you? Who actually is your God? Whose focus will you continue to have? And why is the world the way it is? And why is it so hard even actually to be a Christian? And this chapter, chapter 12 in part, is showing us the reason. Last week, we began to unpack this part of Revelation and its connection to spiritual conflict. Today, like I said, we're in chapter 12. This is the transition part of the book. And to understand this wild passage, we need to start at my favorite time of year, Christmas. I quoted this, what I'm about to share with you, just after Christmas Day to Sanctus. It was written by Philip Yancey years ago. On earth, a baby was born. A king got wind of it. A chase ensued in heaven. The great invasion had begun. A daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. In other words, Christmas is an invasion. And that's actually where Revelation chapter 12 begins. And we talked a little bit about this just after Christmas. Revelation 12, one reads like this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, I asked this before. Let me ask it, ask it again, especially if you've got church background. Where have you seen the image that we just read? Well, some of you just got it. It's in every single Catholic church on earth. It's the statue of Mary. She has 12 stars above her head and she's standing on a moon. And Catholics, of course, believe that this is Mary because she's about to give birth to Jesus. But actually, this isn't Mary directly. This is actually symbolically the Jewish people, Israel, God's people. Israel's made up of 12 tribes. That's the 12 stars. So the image as we get going is Israel, God's people, the Jews, is about to give birth to the Messiah, the Christ. 
Now it says in verse two, she was pregnant, she cried out in pain, she's about to give birth, and then another sign appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and seven crowns on its head. Now, we learned a lot about this in our last series called Deliverance. And we started understanding this verse when we started with the second verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the water at creation. But weirdly enough, water has not been created yet. And then we started understanding that that verse doesn't sort of really get its oomph when you read it in English. The literal translation of Genesis 1-2 reads like this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic, destructive waters of creation. In Hebrew, there is a hostility in this verse. There's a, a, a resistance, a danger in this verse. There's an ominous evil right at the start of creation connecting to dark, dangerous, hostile, raging, out-of-control water. This became clear to us when we actually flipped to the book of Revelation to the very end in, in chapter 21, verse 1. And, and this is our hope. This is the good news. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And remember, I was complaining about to God, like there's not going to be oceans and rivers and, and a sea. I want to hang out at the ocean. No, no. What this is declaring is there's no longer any chaotic, destructive waters or the inhabitants of those dangerous environments. And then remember, we began to say, well, what's living in that weird, chaotic, destructive poetically weird-languaged water. Well, we started reading about these Old Testament beings like Leviathan and Yam and Rahab and Behomoth. And they're not just crocodiles and they're not just weird animals and they're not just mythology. And no, no, everyone, they're not dinosaurs. We found out they were actual literal beings threatening creation. Leviathan in both Jewish and also Canaanite imagery, ready, is a twisting serpent that lived in raging water with seven heads. It was connected to another being named Yam, who was seen as hostile towards God and threatening the fabric of creation, and God overcomes that being in Psalm 74. In ancient Hebrew and Canaanite literature, it makes clear that these entities were worshipped as gods. They were feared. They literally threatened the fabric of creation and their dwelling place, both as you read about it in the Psalms, for example, and in Job, but beyond the Bible, is always in that chaotic, destructive, dangerous water like Genesis 1-2. By the time we get to the New Testament, we understand that these beings aren't metaphorical. They are just an Old Testament way of talking about the demonic. And we see it right here in Revelation 12. But more, this sort of weird being is also found in Daniel 7, verse 7. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, and it had ten horns. And by the way, we'll clarify that next week. So let me read the verse again, verse 3. There, there appeared another sign in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now, you might not catch this, but let's now do it together. Notice the rebellion. Notice the hostility. Notice the pride in the false claims. You're like, what do you mean? Well, ten means complete and seven means perfect. The dragon, by all this image, is saying, I am king. I'm God, I am complete, I have real power. In other words, I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is all lie. This is an attempt by Satan to act like God, be like God, take the place of God, and yet he is not God. 
All the images here are claims that he actually tried to hold on to even before he fell from heaven to earth. Well, the story continues. Verse four, its tail, this red dragon, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, don't think about this in chronological order. Satan drew a third of the angels, the stars, that were with him in heaven and they fell to earth. Now, Lucifer was by no means alone as he attempted to steal God's throne. A state of war breaks out in heaven at the beginning of creation. Satan and one third of the angels are thrown down and they regroup on earth to continue their rebellion. The next huge grand assault against God here is against the Son of God as he's being born. Now, again, not to be too graphic, but think about the graphic nature of this. You've got a woman who's about to give birth and she's in the most vulnerable position. And many of you as women have given birth. So you imagine you're in that position where the baby's about to come out and instead of a nice spouse beside you cheering you on or a midwife or a doctor or a nurse, there is a massive demonic dragon standing right at the birth canal ready to kill the baby just as it takes its first breath. See, like I shared at the end of the Christmas season, this is the dark side of the Christmas story. The undercurrent of hostility we see in Herod and the killing of all the babies in Bethlehem points to this monumental spiritual war happening behind the scenes. See, Herod was not just an evil, paranoid leader, but he was. He was also demonically driven to serve Satan's purposes. The kingdom of darkness knew it had been invaded and it was reacting and attempting to eliminate the invading force, centered on the child who was about to be born out of Israel that was going to reclaim God's authority over all creation. Revelation 12 is God's view of what we see in the book of Matthew happening in the Christmas account. Now, look at the next part. Remember who is coming, who has come, who's going to come again. This is the baby. Verse five, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter. This is all about Jesus. This is all about the coming one. Out of God's people, out of Israel, is the coming Messiah. And just listen to where this quote comes from in the Old Testament and think about it as, think about it as I read this psalm in light of spiritual conflict and demons and governments and world influence. Think about it all. Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations conspire? and people plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah, saying, let's break off their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them with his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me, notice this, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, ready? You will rule them with an iron scepter. Jesus rules, Jesus has real power. All the nations will be Jesus's and all the enemies that try to overcome Jesus and his father, human or demonic, will always fail. That's why the next section is so important. Read along with me, verse five. And her child 
was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, I've read this verse a lot of times, but only until I slowed down recently did I fully understand the implication. By this time in the chapter, in the first five verses, we've already seen the full picture of Jesus. We've got Jesus, his birth. We've got his identity clear. And then this is wild. He's snatched up to God. This is talking about Jesus ascending after he lives 33 years and dies and rises from the dead. 40 days after, he ascends into heaven. Here's what's being implied. His ascension actually declares what he did on the cross is valid. In other words, this is saying Jesus wins, the dragon loses, Jesus is at the right hand of God, and everything is now under his feet. Well, after all that amazing news, we're actually taken back to the beginning of creation again. And why are we taken back from ascension back to the beginning of creation? Oh, because John, inspired by the Spirit, wants to remind us that Satan even lost at the beginning. It says a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now, some people say this is not happening at creation. This is what happened at the cross event. But no, no, Jesus has already talked about this in past tense. This battle is the battle at the beginning. Satan was already in the garden. He was already down here on earth. And when Jesus was doing ministry on earth, what did he say to the original church community? In Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It already happened. So at the beginning, verse nine, the great dragon was hurled down. That's the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and all the angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Now, this is so important. Satan has been thrown out of heaven and thrown down. Oh, sure, Satan took over the world when Adam and Eve fell and gave up the keys. But now the declaration is the kingdom of God has shown back up and the kingdom of darkness is being broken and salvation has come and a greater power is given and Jesus has full authority. But there's still a struggle. So let's just pause here for a second. Do you see that little phrase? The one who accuses us before God day and night. This is really scary, overwhelming, and important. First of all, see how consistent the battle is. Never ending, day and night. Uh, see the determination and the stamina of our enemy. But in that seemingly on, non, non-stop onslaught, that overwhelming place, this also provides incredible insight for us. One of the main tactics that the demonic use against you as a Christian, if you are one, or the church, is accusation. By the way, in my opinion, it always comes in three forms. Let me break it down for you. The very first thing how the demonic accuse you is they accuse you of things you've never done. If you talk to any Christian for any period of time, they will tell you stories where suddenly they have thoughts in their heads where they're like, I've never struggled with that thing before. That's just not my struggle. And yet it's there. And then the demonic show up and they go, you thought that, so you must be that. 
And the idea is not only to shame you into something you've never done, it's to seduce you to go to a place you never struggled with in the first place. The demonic regularly put thoughts in our minds and put us in situations and say, see, see, you struggle with this. And you're like, I really don't. Oh, yes, you do. Because the goal is to cover you in shame for an act you've not done and or to get you to commit the act. The second way they accuse us all the time is bringing up the things we have done. All of us mess up all the time. We sin all the time. And what the demonic will do is they will come and say, do you remember when you did that thing? Do you remember? Oh, it's so evil. It's so disgusting. And they'll throw that in your face. And then they'll say things like this. They'll whisper things like, and you're not really forgiven. The amount of times I've hung out with people who have not yet been water baptized, though it's a command of Jesus. And I say, why haven't you been baptized yet? And they're like, well, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not, I'm not ready yet. I'm like, but it's a beginning thing. They're like, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. And I'm like, but didn't Jesus die and cover that? Accusation. The third way the demonic accuse us, of course, is trying to attach what others have done to you. So you're guilty sort of by association. And they go, well, you're connected to that thing, so you know you also. So this is this ongoing onslaught where stuff we haven't done, stuff we have done, it's all sort of thrown in our face all the time. And so we need to learn how do we resist that? Because we know Satan has been defeated from heaven's view and ultimate victory is on the way. But how do we stand every day, week in, week out, with such a powerful, overwhelming, ongoing assault of accusation as we're waiting in the in-between? Well, this is how for every single one of us. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So here's the first thing we all got to catch. Notice this word triumph. Not they are going to triumph, it's victory now. It's overcoming now. It's not a future thing, it's a today thing. And how do you overcome the accuser? Well, the first thing is the blood of Jesus. See, the blood of Jesus has guaranteed everything that we need and are in God's eyes. This is how we stand against the accusations of the evil one. As the book of Ephesians says, we've talked about this, we're predestined, called, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed, seated in the heavenly realms, a billboard of Satan's defeat. That's true of every Christian in every local church. And Jesus' blood makes all of that true for us. Jesus' blood covers our sin, removes our guilt, cancels our shame. Jesus' sacrifice brings all of his work and all of the Father's work and all of the Holy Spirit's work into our lives. It's the one that covers our sin. Second, the way we overcome the accuser is the word of our testimony. Our stories have power, but our stories don't have power because they're good stories. Our stories have power because our story is rooted in another story. Our testimony is Jesus's testimony. So if it's like a court case, think about it like this. Our defense is rooted in someone else and he does all the work. So we stand against the accusations, even if the things we have done, and we stand by the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. And even though all of that's true, we must still be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel, even unto death. Now again, suffering for the gospel, like we worked out a lot last week, is different than your view of politics. It's not connected to breaking the law or cheating on taxes. And again, if you weren't with us last week, please go back and listen to a biblical definition of biblical suffering, because it really matters. But even if we suffer, by the way, suffering 
for the gospel points to victory because Jesus suffered and then was vindicated. So when we suffer for the kingdom of God, we will be vindicated. So then it says this in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and woe to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Oh, I don't know if you ever thought about this before. Satan knows his coming end. He knows his time is short. But the question is, do you actually believe his time is short? Do you keep living your life like he, you, like, does your life reflect like he wins and Jesus doesn't? Do you actually start believing that Satan is too strong or his time is really long? No, no, no. The Bible's clear. His time is short. But, but, living down here between the first and second coming of Jesus is hard. And one of the reasons why it's really hard is because of Satan's literal hatred and fury. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled down to the earth, verse 13, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child, and the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And we're all like, what is going on? The woman suddenly has wings, she's in the wilderness, and there's multiple times. No, no, no. This is connected to the story of Moses. The, the image comes right out of Exodus 19.4. You yourselves, this is God, of course, speaking to the Jewish people. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, here's what's being declared. God is in control. God is rescuing. God is going to accomplish what he started. And God will bring us to the promised land by the greater Moses in the larger second Exodus. And the road to the promised land between Egypt and the promised land is fraught with danger, yes, but we will get to the promised land. The serpent or the dragon does not have the final say. Well, it says in verse 15, sort of this image of ongoing war, it says, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, again, a few things. Remember, at the beginning of this sermon, and in our last sermon series, we, we always have this image of out-of-control raging water, which, again, is directly connected to this image here. But there's so much more going on here. This is still connected to the Exodus, and specifically the image of Moses. Because remember, during Moses' time, when he was a little boy, a baby, right? What was the command of of Pharaoh in Egypt to drown all the little Jewish boys to kill off their ability, right, to grow as a nation. And so this, any Jewish person hearing this is going to go, oh my goodness, this is sort of like a repeat of the Moses story where there's an attempt, right, to kill God's people in this great river. But here's what we of course know. Moses survives the river, comes out, and he becomes the deliverer for God's people. In other words, this is again a declaration, Satan's attempts to stop God's people will not work. Well, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, us, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. One of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons why it's so hard to be a Christian between the first and second comings of Jesus is this. Satan has declared war 
against the church and against you. By the way, the demonic hate you with a hate I can't even preach or clarify. And they hate every local church. Why? Two things, truth and holiness. The demonic by very nature are anti-truth. They're anti-shalom. They're out of order spirits and they hate scripture. Oh, and they also hate Jesus. They hate who he was, who he is, what he's done, what he offers, and what he expects. And the church, as Christians, as we try to live out and under the scriptures, and as we continue to confess the true Jesus from scripture, the demonic are enraged and they war against us. The demonic are at war with every single Christian on earth. And they are at war with every single local church on earth. And they're trying to stop everything done, everything being done to bring Jesus's kingdom, his father's kingdom on earth, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual in Jesus's name, they're doing everything to destroy it. That's the true condition of the world. But that time is short in light of eternity. Okay, let's just pause here because we're now at the end of chapter 12. It's a pretty intense passage. And so here's the question we should ask this week. Not only, hmm, what did I learn? I didn't know that before. But actually, what is God saying to us at Sanctus Church? What is God saying to you if you don't belong to Sanctus Church or just as a fellow Christian? What is he saying to us so we can walk better? Well, number one, not if, but when you're accused, remember this. You're not alone anymore. Unlike the historic times, I don't know if you've thought about this, when Job was directly accused by Satan, right, in, in the heavenlies, now every time Satan or one of his demonic beings comes to accuse you, he runs into Jesus every single time. There's no accusation that can get by Jesus or through Jesus or around Jesus. So when you're accused, stand in the power of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. Stand with the belt of truth that keeps all the spiritual armor together. So for example, when you're accused of things that you don't struggle with, you just need to declare in Jesus' name, that's not my struggle. And that is a lie, and I don't accept it, and it's not me, and I'm not gonna do that thing. Or when the demonic accuse you of things you have done, because we are guilty of many things, and we have sinned, this is what you say back. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from, notice, all unrighteousness. There is nothing that we have done as Christians that is dark enough or gross enough or evil enough that Jesus is not forgiven. So when the enemy brings up what we have done that is wrong, you say, yeah, I did that thing and I gotta work that out, but I am forgiven. When your own heart accuses you or the demonic accuses you, stand by the blood of Jesus, root your story in his story, and as one person said, I don't know who said it, when the demonic show up, throw the book at them. I mean, this is the most important thing. You can't face off and I can't face off against them, but the spirit of Jesus can, and so can his word. This is where this famous passage matters so much in Romans 8, 37. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height or depth, or anything else in all of God's creation, or anything else in creation, sorry, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the demonic on a regular basis will say God does not love you, God is not with you, God does not want to be with you, he knows what you're really like. The accusation, 
This is the truth. And when you are accused, remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Jesus quoted scripture and Satan left. The other thing is this, when all hell is breaking out, remember heaven's already won. At the beginning of creation, what was already set in stone? I mean, this is the judgment and the promise that God said to Satan right after our ancestors, Adam and Eve, fell. It reads in Genesis 3.15 like this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. In other words, this is what God says right at the beginning. Yes, Satan, there will be a war. Oh yes, and you'll strike Jesus' heel, but he's gonna crush your head. And this is exactly what happened by Jesus' birth, by his life, by his miracles, by his deliverances, by his teachings, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension. Satan is ultimately defeated. And he knows his time is short. I don't know if you caught it as I read through Revelation 12. I sure didn't catch it probably for the first three or four times. It says that Satan was thrown down six different times in the passage. He's thrown down at the beginning, the middle, and as we're going to find out later at the, book of, at the end of the book of Revelation, he's thrown down again. The point is this, Jesus wins. Let me end with this really insightful thought from a fellow pastor. He says, do you ever look around at your life and feel that God has dealt you a losing hand? If you're a student of the Bible, when you see what looks like a losing hand, you know that God is about to try to find a way to actually bring a victory, but he's gonna get all the credit for it. And isn't actually that the type of victory you want anyway? So when everything in your life looks unimpressive or insignificant, trust Christ and watch for the glory of God to be demonstrated. When you feel like a loser, when you feel like a failure, when you feel like you're incompetent, praise God. You're exactly the kind of person God uses to do this. And then I love this. God uses people like that to defeat the great dragon. In other words, it's not about talent or personality or, no, no. It's about being broken and knowing where the real power source comes. So let's just take a moment and let's just pray over a few things. Number one, Lord, I pray that um, this passage, uh, last week's passage and even next week's, would not actually inspire uh, a fear that paralyzes us. I pray that uh, we'd hear this. I pray the demonic couldn't even speak uh, to us as a church or to us as individuals to inspire fear. Lord, I pray that you would begin and continue to deepen the ability for all the Christians across Sanctus to stand against accusation, to really know and appropriate what God has done through Jesus and his blood, to root our testimony in Jesus, and to stand. And lastly, we just want to thank you that you threw him down at the beginning. You promised he'd be crushed. Jesus, you did crush him at the cross, that you're seated right now in the heavenly realms beside God the Father. All things are underneath your feet. And one day you're going to deal with him forever. Just help us, help us to see where the enemy's working and to stand in this middle ground. Thanks that victory is real. Thanks that you use broken people to actually do spectacular things. May your will continue to be done among us. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. We'll see you next week as we get ready for chapter 13. See you then.